It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams, and today we are with Miss Anna Callie. How are you, Anna? I'm great. How are you, Adam? I'm great. Hey, I used to call you Anna, and then I learned <laughs> that you don't say it that way, so I'm trying to fix that now. So That's great. It is Anna, right? It is Anna, yes. Okay, great. All right, so what I wanted to talk to, with you about, and let, actually, let me give a, a teensy bit of your background to the listeners right now. Number one, Anna was, is a mother of four. And so her kids are, you know, 15 years old, 10 years old, 12, eight. And, um, and she actually had a full-time job. And back when there was a crash, her 401k turned into a 201k. And <laughs> she decided that she's going to have to find another way. And so what she did is about five years ago, she said, I am absolutely going to start getting into multifamily. So she bought some small multifamily properties. And I think it was only seven properties. Is that right? In the beginning, I had three buildings, 12 units when okay. I made my five-year plan. When you made the five-year plan. And mm -hmm. then recently, everyone, give her the likes and the loves because I am so excited. And I'm sure she's more excited because she gets to feel it. Uh, she has replaced her income. She's now, uh, she, she quit a six-figure job and is going full-time real estate. And her new thing is syndication. So we're going to learn a ton from Anna Kelly today. Anna, fill in a couple of the gaps. What did I miss? Sure. So like you said, um, 10 years ago or so when we had the crash, I worked for AIG Life Insurance Company, which many of your listeners may know was one of the largest um, companies that that insured these um, loans. And so when a lot of loans went in default, you know, they had issues and they also insured a lot of different companies through these credit default swaps that ended up making them almost go under. So AIG took a $2 billion loan from the government. We all thought we were losing our jobs. My 401k went literally from $101 to 43 cents in about a week. And so lost a significant amount of my retirement, thought that I was losing my job. And my husband had just started the year before a chiropractic business with almost $700,000 in debt. So I was at that point really the primary breadwinner because my husband was starting over, starting his new business and thought I was going to lose my job. And so it was really scary. And having been an advisor, I knew that real estate was lucrative and that if I could find a way to get into it, you know, I could maybe eventually replace my income. So, you know, I tried for a few years. I really couldn't tap into the equity that I had because the banks know I worked for AIG and lending was tightening and I just couldn't tap that equity and really didn't know a whole lot about syndication at this, that point. I wish I had, Adam, but I just knew I could try to figure out a way to buy, you know, properties. So five years ago, after having 12 units and rehabbed them, I had built quite a bit of equity and I had been told by my company at that point, five years later, we are going to sell our division. You're probably going to be laid off this year. Y'all need to start preparing, you know, for losing your job. So I thought I better start buying some more multifamily buildings. 
And I finally made a plan five years ago. I talked to my bank that had kept saying no. And they said, yes, we're willing to give you a second tap into that equity as long as you just use it to buy more property and not, you know, spend it on once. So that kind of got me rolling. And I just kind of made a five-year plan that I knew if I bought 12 units a year that I owned 100% of, I would be able to replace my six-figure job and about a 20 to 25% buffer on top of that for, you know, vacations, emergencies, um, things like that, insurance. And so thankfully in five years, I've been able to execute that plan and I just retired this month. Awesome. So, so much. happy. Thanks. So happy to hear that. Yeah. So I really appreciate you sharing. And I want to ask a few more questions about your five-year plan in the way that we're really just educating the person listening mm-hmm. who also wants to retire from a, a six-figure uh, income and um, doesn't exactly know how to do it. So if we can just share with the listener how you went step-by-step from, you know, this is what I want to do. This is why it's going to work. And this is why I needed to own hundred percent. And this is how, how we ended up doing it. So if you, if you could, uh, I know sure. we, didn't, we didn't plan this, but I think it'll oh. be valuable. Sure. So I I had a little bit of a benefit in that I started out with Bank of America, you know, years ago, training to be a financial advisor. And so I, you know, kind of always have thought about finances in the future and been able to kind of help people to take steps to get where they wanted. So I knew what to do once you had money. I just didn't know how to get the money on my own. And so I just started thinking, you know, if I really want to make money in real estate, we really didn't have the time Um, or resources to start flipping, we knew we would be best off by taking the equity we had in these few units and just using that to reinvest in in multis. So that was just kind of what I knew and what I knew I could do slowly and methodically and I could kind of force that appreciation on these smaller properties and then be able to continue to take out that equity once we rehab them, raise the values, take that equity from a second mortgage or a cash out refi and then use it to buy another cash flowing property. So I just figured out I really needed Adam like 150 to $180,000 a year in order to retire and to feel like I was retiring safely without any debt other than mortgages. So my plan was really to try to do it in four to five years and, and pay down all of the remodel debt. So through the process of figuring out what I needed, I knew for the type of properties that are in my local area, which was important to us because of our lack of time um, and not really having a lot of um, network outside of our local area, we knew that it was best for us to buy local and to self-manage until we could get to a point where we could afford to start handing off the property management and where we really would get to know our market so that we'd be market experts and know for sure what every property was worth, what the rents would be. And just to kind of um, build locally until, you know, the future when we might be able to expand into to larger areas. If I could, so, uh, if I could interrupt, I, I think that I don't want to glaze over what you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's really important and any listener can get a lot of value um, by knowing that there's a high probability they should be doing the exact same thing. So what you're telling us is you felt better about being the expert in an area, knowing Mm -hmm. exactly what things are worth, what they'll sell for, and likely just having a team in place, good brokers, good relationships, good contractors. 
Whereas when you became that expert, and what's the area? Um, I'm right outside of Hershey, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, when you became the expert in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and you kept buying there, and people knew who, who you were, they can't, they can't take advantage of you because they know you're going to keep buying and they know that, it, you know, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And um, being the expert in understanding how much properties are valued at really will benefit you because a lot of people that are going out of state, some of them are here in Denver where I live. Some of them are in California and they're like, oh, let's just go to Memphis. Let's just go to Nashville. Mm -hmm. Let's just go to anywhere, Big Spring, Texas, Dallas, Texas. And it's not that all those markets aren't fantastic. A lot of them are great. But when you're not the expert there, when you don't have those relationships there, you're less likely to make real money and real good decisions to make money. Would you agree? I agree 100%. And I think, you know, number one, and knowing having those relationships, like you said, is super critical. So me having more units in my little town and a couple towns around me, I than almost anybody else. I now have off-market deals come to me through estate attorneys, through title companies, through um, plumbers and roofers and electricians that I use that are really very faithful to me to let me know when they have things because when I have work to do, I go to them first. And so just building those relationships in the community has not only benefited me from having people react quickly when I do need something, um, when I'm self-managing, but it's resulted in deals and, and also a reputation in town that I'm a good landlord. And so people want to rent from me. Um, so that's awesome. important. Yeah. So it's, it's been really beneficial to, to buy locally um, for us. And the other thing for a lot of listeners that might not have anything yet is unless you've got a lot of time or a lot of money or a really great network that trusts you and your abilities to maybe find deals and raise money, you have to kind of start locally because you are going to have to put in some time and do some of the work yourself in the beginning. You are going to have to be able to find a network of people that will maybe sell to you on owner financing or in a creative way without a bunch of capital. And so the more you are invested in a particular community, the easier it is to utilize other people's mind and money and other people's time, as well as just to know for sure that your numbers are so solid. You can bank on those numbers not just for a year or two when the market may change, but over the long run, if you're planning on living on that money. If you're in a market that you don't feel like, if somebody else is in a market and they don't feel like it's a strong market in the short term or long term, what should they do about finding that market and becoming an expert? I think doing some research and especially starting where you've got somebody who are boots on the ground. I can't stress that highly enough. And I know you talk about that as well. You know, if you're going blind into a market, especially if it's a, a major market or a primary or secondary market, you're a tiny little fish in a really big pond. And so you can be taken advantage of, like you said, people can tell you that things are happening to those properties that aren't really happening to those properties. So you've got to be able to find some people that you trust to be able to partner with you as boots on the ground that maybe are planted and they're in that location, even if you're not. So, you know, if you're in California and you've got friends that are in Oklahoma or in Texas that are already in the business, I'd really try to figure out how you can come alongside and help them. What can you bring to them? You know, whether that be raising money um, or finding, finding deals that they're probably going to be better at than you are, but finding something that you can do to offer them 
that um, would allow you to get started in that market, you know, even if it's a real small percentage of a JV or just bringing the money um, to, to build a relationship of trust where you want to invest. You brought up a really good point about aligning with an operator who's doing things already, already has mm -hmm. those relationships. And you mentioned two ways that you might be able to do that is if you brought the deal to them or if you brought equity to them. And so I wanted to ask you um, what your thoughts are about how you might be able to raise the, that equity the right way. Because I see that 90% of the operators that are, you know, great friends of mine, I, I feel like I don't want to speak too much, but I would say more than 90% aren't doing it exactly by the book. And I, and I wanted to find out, because uh, I know you have a lot of experience with uh, securities through the company that you mm -hmm. worked for with your six-figure salary. The question would be then on how do you feel would be the best way to raise equity for a deal and get ownership in that deal? Um, yeah, I'll let you take it from there. Okay, so I'll caveat this with, I have not done major syndication on my own at this point. Everything I've bought has been my own money, equity from the buildings that my husband and I have bought, or we've JV partnered with, with partners who are all in a general partnership and have an active role so that we haven't had to you know, go through a PPM and an SEC filing. With that said, as you mentioned in my job for AIG, I worked in a division where we, for very high net worth individuals and corporations, we created life insurance policies that were invested in private placements, which is basically a security that is not a stock bond or mutual fund. So when you are putting together a syndication, you're putting together a security that other people are investing in. And when that happens, you have a lot of regulations, as you know, through the SEC that you've got to file an exemption of some sort. Um, you've got to make sure that you comply with rules of 506B or 506C, whether you're going out to just accredited investors or accredited investors and some sophisticated individuals. And so what the problem that I see today is that many people say, oh, all I got to do is go out and raise money. And I can raise money because I've got these friends that have cash or my family that have cash. And they don't realize because they haven't really spent time with an SEC attorney, um, which is really critical, that even before they talk to someone about a deal, they have to have a substantive relationship with that person to understand their net worth, their liquidity, whether they really are an accredited investor or not. Um, they need to understand what that means. And they can't just say, you know, I've got a deal, it's going to pay 8%, do y'all want in? And I see that on Facebook all the time. And I'm sure that most of the time it's because people haven't been taught that they have to meet these certain qualifications. And if they don't, if they violate the SEC solicitation rules with even one person, intentionally or not intentionally, then if that deal goes bad in the future, the person can file a complaint with the SEC and say, you know, this group of people that bought this building sold me something that I really didn't understand. They weren't managing it properly. And we think that they violated security solicitation laws. And once the SEC has found out that there might be somebody that violated the solicitation rules, not only is the one person who tried to raise money for that deal going to be slapped on the wrist, fined substantially, and shut down from ever being able to be involved in a syndication again, 
but the operator and anybody else that's a general partner in that partnership can be shut down for life from being able to solicit funds um, in a private placement. So I think even for myself who has a background, I actually did our Reg D filings and our annual SEC audits for my division of my company. So I've been involved in um, SEC inquiries for, for example, a major um, investor who brought investors and started a hedge fund and went to jail for a Ponzi scheme. Well, our company, AIG, had nothing to do with the selection of these investments that the investors themselves brought them. But just by the fact that we were involved in a contract that used that you know, investment, we were you know, in, in litigation and all kinds of things trying to, to show, well, we had nothing to do with how this happened. But every partner that's involved you know, is, is culpable, whether you know it or not. So even with my background, I'm spending a lot of time actually for months talking to SEC attorneys, talking to attorneys, getting prepared to make sure that when I do syndicate a deal, Anybody that I bring in to raise money, um, other than myself and my partners, all understand very, very clearly what the risks are and make sure that we do it, you know, in the right way and that we're, we compensate in the right way as well so that there's no, you know, question of whether someone had to be a broker in order to raise money. Yeah, so there's a couple parts of that that I, I really want to mention. Um, number one, if you don't, have a direct relationship already with a securities attorney, an SEC attorney, a syndication attorney, a securities attorney, then you probably ought to start building that relationship today and asking a lot of tough questions. I, one of the big things that happens when, that when I watch other people is that they unknowingly make a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. because they don't just know the law. And this, this goes back to when I was in Los Angeles doing a mission for a couple of years, and I parked the car in a loading and unloading zone. This, the sign said loading and unloading, and I was loading and unloading. I was doing it slowly, but I was, I was literally lo- unloading my car. And I got back down. And I had a ticket, and I, I was really upset. And the officer said, you have to have moved that within 15 minutes. And I said, it doesn't say that on the sign. And he said, ignorance is no excuse from the law. And that's right. the same thing with syndication. You're going to, if you break securities law because you weren't careful enough to ask the right questions, you're still breaking the law. So. Right. Anyway, there's a lot of ways to do it. I would say on, and Anna, I would love it if you could share one or two of the securities attorneys that you've um, had good um, interactions with, if, if you have one or two in, in mind. Sure. So I haven't talked a whole bunch, but I know Jillian Sidoti is very good. Um, she has a book, uh, crowd, The Crowdfunding Myth, I believe, that goes into a lot of the basic details. So I'd recommend, you know, talking to her as she puts on some seminars and, that book is a really good book for, you know, at least a high level understanding of the 506B and 506C rules. Um, I've also read up on a lot of different, you know, blogs by SEC attorneys, and we have our own, you know, local attorney in the uh, Gettysburg area that's done some 
syndications, but we're, we're actually reaching out to some others um, who I'm not comfortable saying yet because I don't really have a strong relationship with them yet to, to know that I, I absolutely, you know, love and, and want to recommend them. But I would just say, you know, Jillian's a good place. She does this for a lot of people and at least, you know, reach out to her, get her book, um, Jean Trowbridge as well. And, um, you know, see if, if there's somebody that you want to work with. And if not, you know, look for a local SEC attorney that does a lot of multifamily because there's all types of SEC attorneys, but they're going to deal with different types of investments. And so I think it's really important that you get one that specializes and has a history in the marketplace of working on multifamily deals. Um, one other quick point is that it also makes a difference where your property and your investors are located. So if you have a property in one state and you're trying trying to get investors from other states to, you know, invest in that deal, then you have some, you know, interstate filings and things that could come into place. And so you need to be able to work with an attorney that understands not just the, the federal rules, but also the state um, rules. Now, let's, let's get into after knowing your market and becoming the expert in the market and starting to buy in your market and becoming known not just the expert, but known as the expert where people are bringing you the off-market deals. You already mentioned that they did. And then knowing how to raise equity, what, what else do you need to know if somebody wants to quit their job in five years? What are the next steps? I think you really have to know why you're doing it and be fully committed to what you're trying to do. I see a lot of people that say, oh, I'd really love to quit my job and I'd love to start investing in real estate, but they really don't know how hard it is to do that while you are working full time. And especially if you've got children and different things going on. So if you have a lower paying job or you have a spouse that makes a high income to allow you to just, you know, quit what you're doing early and, and you know, get your um, feet to the fire and start you know, doing the hard work and learning, then you might be able to do it a little more quickly. But if you're going to be doing it on the side while you are working a full-time job, I think people underestimate the time commitment and how hard it really can be. You know, we hear um, all these different infomercials and people that say, oh, you know, we'll give you a blueprint and in 90 days or in a year, you can, you know, make millions of dollars in real estate and quit your job. And the reality is when you're not, when you don't have full-time um, time availability to invest in your education and your network and um, learning about things that you've never learned about the mechanicals and roofs and you know how buildings work and um, whether something's really going to be a $10,000 rehab per unit or a $40,000 rehab per unit. There's a lot of information that you have to acquire that quite frankly takes years of time to really become proficient. And so I think you have to be fully committed to do whatever it takes ethically and morally, of course, to reach your goal and your vision. And for myself, it's easy for people to see and say, oh, wow, you've become, you know, this multimillionaire, you've quit your job, whatever it is, but they don't see that it takes years of blood, sweat, and tears to get to the point that your income is truly fairly passive. And so I don't think that I realized it was truly going to take me 80 hours a week to invest in building this business on the side. And so every waking minute, every day over lunch, every night between sporting events and dinner and homework, once my kids were in bed, you know, hours a night planning and going through the finances and dealing with tenant issues. Um, it's just, you have to be all in and fully committed and willing to do whatever it takes to get creative when you have hurdles and to keep going 
And it's a lot of burning the candle at both ends and hard work. Um, and it's hard to find balance, quite frankly, when you're doing it. So there's times when things are smooth sailing and they just seem to be going really well. And then you hit a couple months where you're just like, what am I doing? Can I do this? Self-doubt creeps in. Um, big costs that you might not have, you know, factored in creep in. And you just have to be willing to push through and work really, really, really hard with that that vision, you know, in mind and in front of you every single day to keep you motivated to keep going. Now, that's one of my favorite things that you said today is uh, you mentioned, like, it's work. Uh, a lot of people, they decide to put a couple hours a week or they do it for two months really, really, really hard. They're working 80 hours a week for two months. And then they're like, man, this isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. But it's a bell curve anyways. Like Absolutely. Does, you don't start seeing the traction until, until, until you start feeling that, oh, I think I'm starting to make progress. And then before you know it, boom, it skyrockets. Yes. But that's, Absolutely. That's, that's incredible that you even would share that because th- there's so many uh, gurus that, that talk about, oh, real estate is it. It's so easy. You can wholesale with no money down, no money out of pocket, no money in your bank account, no credit. And uh, you can become a millionaire. And I know a lot of wholesalers. I only know five that are, that are doing well. I only know five that are doing well. You know, exactly. so it's like they, they sell you this dream. They say it's going to be easy. It's not easy. If you want to be great at wholesaling or whatever, you got to be really good at marketing to buyers and marketing to sellers. And you have to have the drive to answer phone calls or the money to pay somebody else to answer the phone calls or else you're not going to make a million dollars. It's going to be really difficult. And And even if you do, you're creating another job for yourself. So, you know, people think, oh, this is going to be passive. I'm just going to start doing this and automate the systems and they'll be in place. And while you can automate, you can get there. It takes a lot of time, you know, to get proficient of that in that. And there's so much competition now with more and more gurus and books and shows. It's hard to have a corner on your market almost no matter where you are. And so for me, flipping and wholesaling were very transactional. And I've done flips and I've made money on flips and I've lost money on flips. And if you need a chunk of cash and you're really good and you know your market, you, you might do a flip or two. And we do a couple each year just to get chunks of cash. But I knew that in building the multifamily business, I'm putting in tons of hard work now that truly are going to pay me and yield rewards for 20, 25 years without having to do significantly more work to them. So having that foresight with with rental properties that, yes, it's really hard now, I'm not going to have to keep this 80-hour-a-week pace forever. I can do it for five or six years, and then it's going to be you know 80% of the time fully passive checks coming in and 20% of the time headaches with dealing with turnover and little things that happen. But you're truly building a business that lasts for the long term and that really can sustain your family and build generational wealth with a few years of just absolutely going all in. And, you know, for me, it was 10 years of 70, 80 hours of work between my business and my husband's business and some of the rentals here in between, and then five years fully focused on the real estate and my full-time job but I've bought my retirement 21 years early. And we could, if I never did another deal, Adam, we would be very content. Thank God. Um, you know, I'm driven. And so we want to keep growing and we want to look into, you know, generational wealth and that, that type of thing. But I no longer have to hustle. And if I never worked more than five hours a day, again, we've built it strong enough that it, it would sustain us 
for years. I so love it's that. so worth it. I love that. So let's drive that point a little bit with just uh, an actual one example. Do you have any single family rentals? I do have a few. I think I have 10 single family rentals. Okay. Pick the middle one. And um, how much money and time did it cost you to acquire it? So I have one example um, that was really one of my first single families that we bought. And again, going back five years ago, we did not have cash. So we had to kind of get creative, but it had a little bit of equity. So when I took an equity line on a few of my properties, we decided let's buy a few single family rentals so that we can go in, rehab, raise the value, and maybe cash out 40 grand that we could use to put down as a down payment on another four unit building. So I saw a foreclosure. It was a bank owned property. It was what they call here a half a double, but it's basically a duplex. So it's one side of a duplex. And this property I got for about $70,000. And I knew that it would be worth about $120,000 to $130,000 when we were done with it. So I took fourteen grand from my equity line of credit and I put that down as my down payment on this bank-owned foreclosure. And I went back to the same bank and they gave me an 80% loan on it. So it was basically 100% financed, part from a second mortgage on a four-unit and part from the, the primary mortgage. And my husband put in the sweat equity to do it. So we really didn't hire out many um, of the, the jobs other than like roofing and flooring. But, you know, reconfiguration, the painting, changing out countertops, cabinets, and, and bathroom materials, all of that stuff my husband and I did. And so we put in a lot of sweat equity that saved us a lot of money on contractors so that we could make enough that we could, you know, put it down on a chunk of, of four units. So we took about three, mo three months to do that, and it, we put in about $19,000. And when we were done, we raised the value about $60,000. So we were able to cash out the um, money that we put into it, get our down payment back, get a second mortgage, and then take 40 grand and use that as a down payment on a four unit building. So my mortgage payment went up about 250 a month, but I was able to buy a building that had about a $1,600 a month cash flow um, in the four unit once we were done. And so it was just a slam dunk, no brainer. And doing that, that's why we bought the other singles. We thought we can make some money pretty quickly on those, have nice, stable, long-term single families. But really we wanted the equity to, to cash out and, and use to buy more multis. All right. So my question was a lot shorter than that. You know, I just wanted to know how much time and how much money. And I think the answer was somewhere in there, three months, 19000 right about. Okay. And so the next question is, was going to be the equity. I think you answered that already. 60,000 in equity. So if you were a fix and flipper and you had to pay all the fees, you might've made uh, $20,000 after something like Max. that. Max. So 20,000. So the question comes with understanding where are you with that one? So because you didn't fix and flip it, but you held it instead, you were able to pull out a lot of equity and put it down on another property and keep like parlaying your bets, right? Yes. And 
furthermore, just out of curiosity, if you would have made 20 grand net profit before, how much are you making annually profit on that property just one, each year? Well, I would say I net about $300 a month on that property. So $3,600 a year, but you've also got the depreciation expense. You've got your mortgage pay down. Um, and so when you, when you add it all in, it's a lot more than that. And my return is really infinite because every month, every bit of money that I put into that, I pulled back out and I used it for another one that's making the additional returns there. So when you rehab these properties and you keep them, you can create truly infinite returns and chunks of cash and not pay the IRS a capital gains like you would have if you sold it. You just continue to roll that money, you keep them for the long term, and so then they provide you, you know, another four grand a year in cash toward your goal of replacing your income, plus you took the big chunk of change out to help you to continue to grow. So it's Got just it. a no-brainer to keep them as rentals, yeah. Awesome, awesome. All right. Thank you for sharing that. All right, we're going to get into the final five, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have uh, been listening to the show for a little while, you love the show, and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review, I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. All right, Miss Anna Kelly, what is the most creative deal you've ever done? The most creative deal I've ever done, I think, was my beach house rental that I bought in Ocean City, Maryland. So I really wanted a second home, but I wasn't going to do it unless I could make really good money doing it and have somebody else basically pay for my vacations. And so I found a um, beach house that I spent months and months researching the market in the area, um, found a short sale that my realtor brought me into. And I didn't really have the money that I needed down to buy this rental. But I knew if I didn't do it before I lost my job with AIG, I'd never be able to afford to do it. So I borrowed the down payment from a friend who we had a JV on several other properties. And basically, we, we talked to our accountants, make sure, made sure that we did it in a legal up and up way that wouldn't get us into trouble. But basically, we, um, I took a business loan from a business that we had together. He dumped in equity. I used that as a down payment on my second and then I was able to get um, some additional uh, financing that was kind of creative in order to take down this property. And I had about 90000 in equity in it when I bought it and then was able to basically, you know, fully fund 100% financed our second home and our family vacations. And now that property brings us about $12,000 a year net on top of paying for us, you know, a summer vacation and year-round use of a really luxury high-end uh, beach home in, in Ocean City. So I was thrilled to be able to, to work that one out. Awesome. Where, what is a book you recommend? Um, I recommend a lot of books, but one that I really read last year that really resonated with me was called Life and Air. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but- Yeah, I've sat down with both of the authors. I like them both quite a bit. It Sean is Klaus amazing. And Stephen Cook. Yes, because it really talks to you more about figuring out the kind of life that you want to live and designing everything that you do, um, whether it's business or you're investing, 
around living that lifestyle now. So, so many people work so hard for years and years and years to build a business and it's all grunt, but they don't stop to enjoy life today. Instead of really thinking about as I'm building my business and as I'm growing, how can I kind of have that balance and, and live that life today and make sure that I don't do deals that are going to interfere with my vision for life. So, you know, if my vision for life is to travel a certain amount of time with my family or to spend more time with my family, you know, while short term, I'm going to have to make some sacrifices. I want to start building those things in today and not start getting into deals that are going to steal that time away from my family today, just because it's got, you know, the, the shiny gold and, and the dollar signs on the other end of it. So it's really important for those of you that are trying to find balance and, and enjoy your life and enjoy the growth, you know, even, even during the grunt years. Awesome. All right. So we are pretty comfortable with where you were five years ago. Cause I remember you had a couple properties. They had a little bit of equity. Uh, you were wanting to quit your job in four to five years. And so you set down on a path to getting there and here you are today. You fulfilled that you've have, actually retired from a six-figure salary. You have, you're making more than 150 uh, up to 180 in net passive cash flow just from your rentals that you own by yourself or the two with the JV partner. Yes. Where will you be five years from today? So today we are, you know, really comfortable in terms of our, our basic lifestyle and we are in this place right now. We're kind of along the lines of life and air, Adam, we want to be able to grow, but not grow just for the sake of growing. So, you know, while there's, it's great to have a vision and it's great to have, you know, I'd like to be at so many doors or I'd like to be at this much network. We've really already gotten to the place where we wanted to be, that we were comfortable. And so it's really important to us right now, to my husband and I both, to at least this summer kind of, you know, relax, enjoy the fruits of our labor, do some traveling with our kids. And we're looking at deals, we're active, you know, I'm spending five, six hours a day on looking for additional deals that make sense to syndicate or for the JV partners or for our own portfolio, where we know that we can make a, a profitable investment for the long term, but without that pressure that we have to get to a certain amount because we've reached that lifestyle. So it's really slow growth. I mean, my, my, one of my partners and I just formed a company where we are looking for deals to syndicate and we are looking to take down two deals this year if they make sense, larger deals that we'd syndicate while we're also, you know, looking to build our own portfolio slowly with assets that um, can not only have appreciation and income, but that are going to be low maintenance and low sweat equity. Since we've already built through uh, sweat equity, we're, we're kind of moving toward, you know, really stable assets that don't need a significant amount of work, but that have some room for that, that value play. So five years from now, we want to grow, we want to be comfortable, we want to enjoy our children. And however big that grows, you know, that grows, we're still trying to kind of figure out how that makes sense. But ideally, I'd like to syndicate two to three deals a year and, and bring on some other partners and really show them the benefits of that passive income. Love it. Love it. How do you give back? One of the things that I like to do is I, I volunteer a lot for our um, children's school. I've been on the school board and, and really believe uh, strongly in our um, Christian school and what we do there, um, pour into my children. I don't, haven't had a lot of time, to be honest with you, in the last five years to do much outside of serving on the school board, just because our time has been really 
limited. Um, but one of the things that I did and I'm very passionate about is working with inner city youth. And I did that a lot in Houston. And as I, as I retire, one of my goals this year is to get back into an organization um, that works with inner city youth um, and, and those that are in poverty and just show them that there is hope. Um, long story, but I grew up in Section 8 housing and I had a lot of groups come and pour into us that really made an impact on my life. And so giving back to children and showing them that there is a, a better way and a, a, a hope for their future in every way is really important to me and something I'm excited to get back involved in. All right. The last question is how do people find you? So my email is info at reimom.com. I have a website that is reimom.com and also a face on my Facebook page. It's Anna REI Mom Kelly. And I have a Facebook group for people that want to kind of learn to do how, what I did the way that I did it called Creating Wealth That Lasts with Anna REI Mom on Facebook. Okay, uh, so creating wealth that lasts with Anna REI Mom, right? Creating yes. wealth that lasts with Anna REI Mom. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes so they can find it easier as Great. well. Anna, thank you so much for adding so much value. I know we spent a lot more time than we anticipated, so I hope I didn't make you late for anything. But I really no, it's my time. pleasure. I'll thank let you, you go. So Until next time, think outside. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.